Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Our top story this week is the Democratic National Convention, where Hillary Clinton became the first woman to be nominated for the presidency by a major U.S. party. While the Democrats gathering in Philadelphia started off on a rocky note, thanks to a small but vocal group of die-hard Bernie Sanders supporters, the Democrats came together in a highly disciplined, star-studded, well-choreographed show that provided a strong contrast to the Republicans' convention the week before in Cleveland. So, Jay, what did you think about the Democrats' uh, convention in Philadelphia this last week? Well, you should probably lead off on this because you you got a better better sense of it. Um, You know... It was it was sort of uh, what you'd expect from a Democratic convention. Um, the the Sanders supporters uh, quieted down after a while. Uh, you know, is is this part of unity? I guess that sort of remains to be seen. Um, but uh, no, all in all, I I suppose it it went uh, it went all right. Um, uh, I'll, I'll I'll let you sort of delve into the the various speeches and so forth and. Uh, you know who said what? I mean, I, I guess the, you know one issue that I think is a little tr- was I don't know say troubling, um, but maybe a bad call was was the um, uh, the mothers of the and I'll uh, put my air quotes up uh, victims of of police violence and some of them I think are le- were legitimate victims of police violence, uh, others were criminals who got shot. Um, you know I, I think that that sends a a. A, a bad message. I mean, uh, to law enforcement, when Trump is is playing the uh, "I'm the law and order" candidate, and you put Michael Brown's mother uh, up up there, um, and again, these people weren't necessarily in prime time, uh, but they were still there. The other thing that the uh, the Democratic National uh, uh, Convention did was they had uh, illegal immigrants and uh, daughter up there, and again, to you know, thunderous applause, um, which. Say which I mean, some conservative uh, over-the-top websites, you know, threw a fit over the violating federal law and so forth. Um, I don't think that's the case, but but it still sends the message of uh, who, what, what, uh, uh, which candidate would you um, y- y- trust to enforce our current immigration laws? Uh, and if Hillary Clinton is up there uh, welcoming um, uh, a current illegal immigrant uh, on the stage. Uh, one suspects that uh, she would she would not be uh, a vigorous uh, enforcer of our, our current regime. You know uh, the the one the one point you mentioned I I, I want to comment on the the use of by both parties really we saw this in Cleveland the week before the use of both parties of of people who have lost loved ones to whatever it might be to uh you know illegal immigrants who you know uh, came into the country and, and and killed them i think there was an example of that from the republicans or uh right. you know people who well, trump, are, trump talked about yeah, people but, but i don't think they had any anyone actually there well you know i i guess this is one of the problems i have with conventions and last week i mentioned i i struggle with with conventions because it seems to me that it there something that rubs me the wrong way about 
what I feel oftentimes is using someone's grief as a political prop that, that bothers Amen. me in a very fundamental yeah. way. Both parties do it. I understand the, I understand the argument for it, saying, listen, policies have consequences. These are real people and bad things are happening. I, I get that, but I think it's a very fine line. And so that really I, – I can't really stomach that and I understand that you know other people can make reasonable counterarguments. But for me, that just seems wrong to me. Um, I, no, and I, I got to agree with you, and I, I probably have more problems stomaching it than, than you do. Uh, it's just um, – I'm looking for the – I'm trying to – and the word will come to me. Uh, but it's it's just you know kind of sleazy. Yes. Uh, and I do feel uh, it's, it's, it's taking advantage of uh, people's, people's grief. Yes. Uh, people's situation. And, and this, is, this is a you know, long history. I mean it goes back you – know, um, you know, I'd say it probably goes back to like you know the, the Boston Massacre, um, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I I dislike it. I find it to be, um, oh gosh, I find it unseemly, it. Uh, unseemly. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. What I was looking for. Um, but that said, there's there's a vast uh, portion of the populace that that sort of loves it yeah. and sort of eats it up, and um, you know, I, I guess. They know their audiences. Um, Absolutely. You, you know, more more generally, kind of pulling back and you asked me what I thought in general about the Democrats. It it seemed to me it was almost kind of like a bizarro world sort of thing. Here you have the Democrats talking or talking about America being great, uh, talking uh, – the Democrats with a highly disciplined – very on message convention. The Democrats, who also, by the way, nominated the early front runner establishment kind of candidate. I mean, these are all the things that historically we've come to expect from Republicans. And so right. it was a very now I should point out that the party that's out of power from the presidency, which would be the Republicans, of course, the party out of power always tends to try to look at the country in a little more of a negative there's a, need, there's a need they need to make the case for change yeah. yeah but this is far more negative i mean that the contrast was just was just really really striking uh, and so i i mean i don't necessarily tend to think that conventions are as big a deal as a lot of folks you'll see a momentary bump and then that goes away by mid-august things tend to settle down and so forth but I, I, I there weren't any real surprises to me i mean for instance uh you know democrats love president obama and love michelle obama this is not a shock you know certainly um you know, I I think one thing that a lot of conservatives have asked, the question they've asked is, so what exactly is Hillary Clinton running for? You know, we we pretty it's pretty clear what right. Donald Trump President. is running for. Yeah, <laughs> I think and, that's, that's the answer that you yes, exactly. And you know that that's I think that's a reasonable criticism as well. Why does she want to be president? Well, because she's always wanted to be president since probably she was a little girl or something like that. You know, and on one hand, I say okay, that that's fair. But then again, it's sort of hard to say, well, I kind of believe in the same sort of stuff that the guy who was just president believed in. And so I sort of want to do more of that. More of the same is not really a stirring sort of message, you know, and so she's trying to play it sort of two different ways. And, and one being, you know, I am the agent of change and we need change because the sense is and I, I think she's right. 
on the broader picture, this is, you know, what, what they call a change election. Um, uh, but she's also, you know, there's, there's no way to escape that she was the secretary of state for <laughs> president Obama for, for, for four years. And then she's up there hugging him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, that's going to be a difficult, uh, sort of circle for her to square. Um, Going forward. And I don't really think she believes that we need change, not fundamental change. I think she believes that certain things that President Obama did need to be tweaked. I think she'd love to see. (laughs) She's going to change sort of the, you know, the the drapes in the Oval Office, perhaps, you know, those sort of things. And and certainly she would like to see some big policy changes, just as President Obama would have liked to have seen some big policy changes in areas like immigration and areas like gun control and so forth. But the reality of the situation is both. President Obama and Hillary Clinton are center left sort of characters. I mean, they're they're not as centrist as, say, I am, for instance, but they're not Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren type of people. You know, we, we kind of know, have a good sense of what a, a Hillary Clinton administration would look like, and it's not going to be a huge shock. It's not going to be a major change, whereas pretty clearly Donald Trump... <laughs> Would be it's something we've most likely never seen before. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it, you know, so in one sense, it's historic. It's an historic nomination, obviously, Hillary Clinton being being a woman. I mean, but in terms of what she would do policy, you know, it's 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 pretty, pretty standard stuff. One contrast I will point out is. Certainly, there was an awful lot of focus on Donald Trump, as you would expect. And I think that the main focus and I expect this to be a pattern for the next not quite 100 days, is that idea of uh, Donald Trump not having the temperament to be president. If he can get all worked up over a tweet, should this guy have nuclear codes and so forth? And also that idea of Hillary Clinton specifically said, here's Donald Trump saying, I alone can fix it, which, boy, if ever anything sounded like a Mussolini-esque kind of statement, that was it, you know, and trying to draw that contrast. And I think that's important because I think if this election becomes about Hillary Clinton, that's not good for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think with the I alone comment, uh, I, I mean, I think that's the look, they're playing politics with that. I, I don't think it's, um, you know, if you sort of parse the parse, the words, I, I think it's the, the sense he's getting is I, I am the only candidate who can fix that, uh, as opposed to I personally, uh, you know, can, can run the government. Um, but, uh, you know, setting that for set that aside, um, the other, the Clinton thing that, that, uh, something that was, was a little unusual in this convention and partly because of the Sanders, well, I don't say partly because of the Sanders uh, faction, but I would say mostly because of the Sanders faction is, is in most conventions and at this stage of the, of the game, what you see is, uh, a candidate runs to the right or left uh, during the primaries to solidify the base, and then as they uh, become the nominee, move back towards the center, uh, pivot to the center, as you, if you will, um, to to appeal to the the middle of the road um, mainstream electorate. And Hillary, if anything, did the did the opposite. Uh, she was sort of. Again, she's been pulled leftwards by the the Bernie people, um, and I think that's that's something that's a little bit different, and it's a little, uh, uh, you know, something something to watch going forward. Uh, it, it's hard to say. I mean, Trump, again, he's he's almost 
non-ideological in, in some respects. So it's, it's hard to say whether he goes <laughs> has moved right, left or center. Um, uh, but but uh, the Hillary Clinton, I mean, it, it did seem to be more an appeal to the base than an appeal to middle America. Um, and, and again, maybe in this election, she needs the base more than she needs middle America because this is this is different. This is weird. Uh, and it's more just, hey, I'm not Donald Trump. Right. Uh, but I, I don't know. And I just I just think that's that's a little interesting in that, uh, you know, for example, you know, in the her autobiography, she touted uh, the, the TPP as a uh, as an accomplishment, and now she's you know never heard of it. Um, you know, it's that that type of thing. Um, yeah, and it's been suggested that by I mean by people who are close to the, to Hillary Clinton that once she gets back, once she, assuming she wins the election, she would actually be uh, for. Uh, that yeah. trade agreement, and I and think that's sort of, a fair sort of statement. The opposite of what of what Bill Clinton did, um, and if you remember back in in ninety two, I mean, by her having sort of the Black Lives Matter folks at the convention, uh, you know, Bill Clinton was famous for the the sister soldier moment, um, where he sort of sort of denounced, uh, you know, sort of the the more radical um, uh, elements of of the the black community and against cop killers and all that sort of thing. Um, and and really pivoted to the center, and 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 most of a lot of Americans said, oh, okay, this this guy is is somebody who is is uh, more middle of the road and 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 not um, radical on on yeah. those type issues. And, and again, it seems she's she's doing the other. And, and you may you may well be right, given the the Clinton penchant and, and ability uh, to sort of, I guess, sort of move back and forth uh, seamlessly. Um, you know, I think I think maybe that's what what'll happen. I think another point, you know, a lot of people will be will start focusing on the national polls now, and and right now they seem to have Hillary Clinton with just a slight lead. But and we've talked about this before. It's going to be tough for Donald Trump to find a way to get to 270 electoral votes. If you just kind of take a look at the map, and even historically now, Trump's people will say that they're going to change that map. But basically, the Democrats start with. Uh, around, I think it's at this point, around 220 or so electoral votes, and the Republicans with not quite 190 in very solid states. But then when you look at the toss-up states, like Pennsylvania, 20 electoral votes, but it hasn't voted for a Republican in, I think, since 88 or 92. Uh, Virginia is likely to go to the Democrats. And, you know, before before long, you have Hillary Clinton very close to 270. I, I really think that Donald Trump is going to have to essentially run the table of toss-up states almost, of real toss-up states, for to, to even have a chance at the presidency. And so that's why I think that this is going to be this is going to be awfully tough for him, despite what the national polling, you know, suggests. I don't think this race right. is really Again, as, as close as, as, we, as, as we always say, national polls uh, mean nothing. Yeah. And and just for, for for listeners who are interested in kind of playing around with their own scenarios, there's a there's a great site I'd like to recommend where you can do that. It's two seventy to win dot com. That's two seven zero to win dot com, and you can plug in your own scenarios and so forth. And uh, I I take a look at it on a fairly regular basis. I think it's a great tool if you kind of want to get a better sense of of, of this sort of thing. So. And, and the other interesting piece, there is one state, and I believe only one. Mike, you might. We can double check and correct, but Nebraska, uh, which apportions its electoral votes. Yeah, Maine and Nebraska are the two. Yeah. Okay, two. 
But they're, they're tiny states that, you know, I mean, right. that's six electoral votes between them. So, uh, yeah, not necessarily, a, a, usually not a huge deal, certainly. So, uh, okay, uh, you know, let's move on. I, I wanted to talk about more disturbing news that's come out about foreign governments hacking democratic computer systems. Over the, yeah, I know. Over the last week, U.S. intelligence agencies have expressed high confidence that Russian state sponsor hackers broke into the Democratic National Committee system. And late in the week, both the DCCC, that's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and the voter analytics system used by the Clinton campaign were reportedly hacked, again, by agents of the Russian government. Now, the DNC information was released by WikiLeaks, but as of yet, there's been no release of the DCCC or the Clinton campaign information. So, Jay, what do you make of this? Well, I'm wondering if Putin used that big reset button uh, in order to to help with the hacking. I don't know if it actually functions at all. Um, You know, I I guess it, it goes to... The big concern that that people have about uh, the other Hillary emails, um, to some extent, look, breaking in the DNC and and those type emails are are likely to bring out some embarrassing things, uh, some things that you know people say candidly, campaign staffers and uh, consultants say candidly to one another um, that have the potential to embarrass candidates and and uh, other politicians. Um, Stuff that you have while you're serving as Secretary of State uh, is is a much bigger problem, and and the concern is if the Russians have the one, uh, they may well, or if not the Russians have have the other. Um, there's no evidence to to prove that at this point. Uh, although there's there's one I think Russian hacker who said he got into the Clinton private server, uh, but it but it highlights the Republican concerns about um, Hillary Clinton's use of. Uh, Use of computers, yes. <laughs> period, um, and especially when you, when you consider, I mean, I I would suspect that that you know the the DNC computer configuration, it's it's there's there you're going to be working with mostly the same type same folks. Um, so I, so what, I, I it, it I think it's I think it's a big concern. What do you make of the fact that it's only Democrats that have been hacked? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of what. <laughs> See, to me, I mean, a lot of people are saying, of course, well, you know, uh, Putin wants Donald Trump to win the election. And uh, this is a, you know, this is a pretty, pretty big concern. And some folks, I think some pretty out there folks have suggested some sort of a, you know, overt connection. I don't buy that for a minute. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's. It would be uh, – I don't know if it would be – I don't know if it would be less of a concern if both parties were hacked exactly. But – and of course we should point out that – you feel better. Well, well, this sort of thing no, no, goes I, on I my, all the time. My, my thought is, I mean, if, if, I'm, if I'm Vladimir Putin and my intelligence chief comes to me and says, uh, uh, hey, I think we can, we can hack into Trump's um, uh, you know, campaign emails – and and the sense would be like, well, what what would we find out? I mean, you know, um, uh, what what could he possibly say in emails that he doesn't say publicly, or uh, you know, that would would be somehow embarrassing? I mean, I guess the the worst thing that could come out is, uh, you know, an admission that like, hey, it's all an act. I'm just I'm just acting crazy. I'm not really like this. Um, I I think there's you know two things. I, I think there's probably also just less of a. Um, uh, Trump um, uh, email trail out there uh, just because of, of how he operates. And, sure. and again, this is the the DNC, the DN, uh, the uh, Triple C, which are long established uh, uh, organizations and and uh, so forth. So, 
Yeah, and, and and it may well be that Putin wants um, uh, Trump to be president. And, I you know, know. Point out the the WikiLeaks connection here because the Russian information was given to WikiLeaks, and of course Julian Assange has, has said pretty clearly that he wants to hurt Hillary Clinton, however he can. He's also said that there's stuff that he has yet to release, and that's gotta, I would expect, that's gotta have some people in the Clinton campaign extraordinarily uh, worried. Uh, but one other thing I'll mention is that you know Donald Trump made a comment. An off-the-cuff comment, as Donald Trump pretty much always does, that the Russians should, you know, uh, if they have these missing uh, 30,000 emails, they should turn them over to the FBI. And uh, the media went crazy about this, saying, you know, Donald Trump is – committing treason or something yeah, so like there that. Were, yes, I uh, think Donna th- Brazile accused him of treason you know, and several other commentators at the, the convention did. Yeah, yeah I, and that, that, of course, is just ridiculous. Donald Trump was being overblown, sarcastic, what have you. And here's one case where I actually will defend Donald Trump. I mean, I don't think that a presidential candidate should say stuff like that. But then again, I don't think a presidential candidate should be on Twitter like Donald Trump is in the first place, at least not with those kind of, you know, personal treats. But he's a he's a different kind of guy. And but the idea that this was Donald Trump calling for Russian hackers to do anything illegal, I think, is just absolutely ridiculous. And and right, so I will right. it was it was it was again sort of a tongue in cheek, uh, I think, uh uh, way to point out what what I just said is that hey, there's a concern that this other information um, uh, may have already fallen in the hands yeah. of, a, of an unfriendly government. Which, and I also just have to point out the the really funny irony uh, of of him saying that that the reactions of all the the treason and, and so forth um, that if as Hillary has contended uh, throughout this that the thirty thousand emails were about yoga schedules and Chelsea's wedding. Well, there's really no treason there, is there? Uh, there's really nothing to worry about if, right. if Hillary's yoga schedule from four years ago uh, and the 30,000 emails relating to that said yoga schedule uh, were to fall into the hands of an unfriendly government. It wouldn't, really wouldn't do them much good. Um, uh, and that uh, I think is, is you know – Perhaps a little telling. Yeah, and, and we obviously we don't know what WikiLeaks has. It, it certainly could be a tactic just to you know sow doubt and, and make people Get their name wonder. In the paper. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's concerning. I, I, one other point I wanted to just mention before we, we moved on to something else is that governments do this all the time. We do this. That the one thing that's different, of course, is that when we hack into Russian uh, political parties, and so the idea that there are you know viable Russian political parties more than one is kind of ridiculous. But anyway. When we hack into these things, we don't release this to third parties and and try to overtly influence uh, the political system in these countries through elections and so forth. And so that's what makes this a little different, uh, and that's what makes Russia, I think, just incredibly uh, a a major matter for concern, I would say, no matter which side. You know, and I would just say my my concern is less that uh, you have a foreign power exercising uh, influence in an election. The bigger concern for me is that you have a foreign power that has the ability to exercise influence after an election based on information that they've they've obtained. Yeah, good point. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm basically saying, you know, blackmail. Uh, I think that's that's the bigger the bigger problem. Whether whether blackmail of of, of, a, of a candidate, which is or, or the the president, which is you know horrible, but um, of of other people further down the chain. Yeah, and who who knows what's in some of those emails? I, uh, it you know, I, it it still just stuns me the fact that people would put 
so many potentially incriminating things in emails that just blows my mind at this point. Uh, if, if any, if anyone learned anything from this, it's that you should not be putting these things, you know, take, take a lesson from Big Polly and Goodfellas, you know, never put anything in, in, in writing, you know, directly, always have a cutout. And so you would think this is, you know, this is some kind of basic sort of stuff, but I don't know. Anyway, before we get to our next story, we would like to thank our new supporters this week. First, there's mm-hmm. Babe. Yeah, well, this is actually not a new supporter. Baby Teak from East Kilbride in the UK, a repeat contributor to our show. Thank you once again for uh, you know for, for helping out, uh, helping and supporting us. We really appreciate it. Repeat, that. Choosing, choosing hope over experience. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. As yeah. far as being a repeat supporter, but yes. Our second supporter shout out goes to Jeremy from New York City, who made a gener- for who made a very generous contribution as well. And in the purpose line of the PayPal contribution form, Jeremy wrote, "Because your podcast is the best." Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, we appreciate that, Jeremy. Um, also, last week, you, you might recall that I asked everyone who hadn't already left a rating or a review of the show on iTunes if they could help out by doing that, given that iTunes ratings and reviews are very important in increasing audience sizes. Um, a few of you did that last week, and we really appreciate it. Right now, we're at 73 reviews, and we're hoping by this time next week, we can be up to 80. So if you haven't left a review yet, we hope you'll help us get to 80 this week. And finally... If you're interested in helping us pay the bills and keep the show going, you can do what Baby Teak and Jeremy did last week. Go to politicsguys.com and click on either the PayPal or the Patreon donation links we've got up there. All right, now on to our next story. Those Russian hacks we were talking about haven't had a major effect on the presidential campaign, at least not yet. But they did confirm something that pretty much everyone who wasn't drinking the Hillary Clinton Kool-Aid already believed that the Democratic National Committee had it in for Bernie Sanders from the very beginning. And this was fairly conclusively demonstrated by the emails released by WikiLeaks, which ended up leading to the resignation of DNC chair and longtime Clinton friend, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, what did you... Uh, fix what, was in. Yeah, what did, what did you think about this, Jay? Were you surprised? No, I, I wasn't surprised. I guess I was maybe, maybe surprised at the... Um, well, like we just talked about, that you'd put all this stuff um, this plainly in uh, in emails, um, but you know, it's I would say in almost every other year, the head of the uh, committee, the national committee, uh, and the the campaign of the front running uh, in this in this case, the sort of anointed um, uh, candidate, it's there's there's usually kind of hand in glove, and they they work quite well together. Uh, I'm I'm pretty certain you could look back and at, at uh, say the RNC in 1992, and and you would find that they were uh, pretty much all in for uh, George H W Bush. Um, uh, so I, it's it's not not surprising in the least. Um, what I guess you know what is surprising is sort of the. Um, you know the arguments that they all made to the contrary that they're that they're not involved, and then here they are. So, um, yeah, to me, it's it's uh, it's kind of par for the course. And uh, look, Bernie knew this, Trump knew this, everybody knew this. Uh, it just sort of uh, took the Russians to uh, get them to admit it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think uh, this to me, it, yeah, isn't very surprising at all. I think there are a couple things. Number one, the idea that political parties are about fairness is you know 
I think, incredibly naive political parties are about winning elections. And so the party leadership makes some decisions, tries to make some decisions early on about who's going to give them the best chance of doing that. And while they have to publicly say, well, of course, we welcome all candidates, let a thousand flowers bloom and all that kind of thing. They're immediately trying to coalesce around somebody and crush all dissent in the nicest way possible and, you know, try to get everyone to rally around that one person. But I think is a little more of an issue, and this didn't directly come out, but when you have uh, somebody who's an old friend of the, you know, of the presumptive, nom- well, not the presumptive nominee, but someone who everyone thinks is going to be the nominee, the sort of establishment choice, running the party organization, and even more than that, when you have a sitting member of Congress as the party chair, I think those are two really bad ideas. And here's where I give credit to the Republicans. The Republicans don't have a sitting member of Congress as their party's chair. And I think that's a smart move because it eliminates or at least minimizes a lot of potential conflicts of interest. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz before this has had a lot of issues because it was seen that she was Hillary's person from the get-go. President Obama didn't really like her so much, despite his public comments to the contrary. And it was seen that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was a lot more about promoting Debbie Wasserman Schultz than about promoting the Democratic Party. If those two things would go together, that was great. But if not, well, she definitely was seen with the sense to have put herself before the party. And I think that's a big problem. And that's why I think the Republicans have handled this better. Well, and I think, yeah, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is is not a terribly likable person, um, at least at least my 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 view. And I suppose others can uh, can can disagree. But, um, yeah, uh, I, that's that's part of the problem, too. It wasn't just it was that it was any uh, sort of DNC uh, leader. It was it was a, a very vocal one uh, and someone who is uh, certainly, I guess, uh, uh, I guess is strident uh, a good word to uh, uh, to describe you, you, her. You used uh, the word can I, strident. Can I say that without like getting in trouble? I was going to say you used the word strident when describing a woman at your own peril, Jay. That's all know, I'm going to say about that. Um, but all right, I'll, but I'm still going to say it. I okay. Think a lot of okay. people would, would agree with me that. Uh, 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 so yeah, she she's she's not a, a likable uh, figure, and that that made it it much much worse. Yeah, but, but, but also, yeah, and, and I agree the the idea that you have someone who is in Congress uh, that is so tied to this um, it, it makes a lot more sense to have someone who is outside, independent, um, and, and so forth. And even if it's a perfectly you know even if that person is a perfectly decent person, it puts them in a bad situation where they have to make hard decisions about their political future and and so forth as opposed to what the president might want and that I don't think it's a good idea to put people in that position. So again, I I you know I tend to be sort of an institutionalist at heart and I think you you want to try to set up institutions so that they 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 avoid putting people in these difficult situations and the Republicans right. have done that in this particular instance I think more so than the Democrats have. All right, so- um Now, for a little bit of recent history. Now, Jay, you'll almost certainly dispute me, at least in part, uh, on this. And and, and once I finish, I'm sure you'll you'll have your say. Without a doubt, uh, I would expect nothing less. I hope so. Here's my history lesson for everyone. It goes way back. Following the post-Civil War period, known as Reconstruction, 
Southern states passed all sorts of voting laws intended to disenfranchise Mm -hmm. minority voters. And this went on for nearly a century until a Democratic Congress passed and Democratic President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965. This law required that those states with a history of disenfranchising minority voters get approval from the federal government, something called preclearance, before they could change their voting laws. And this is pretty much how things stood until just a few years ago in 2012 when the Supreme Court's five conservatives overturned the preclearance provision, arguing that times had changed so much since then that it was no longer justifiable. And so what happened? Southern states rushed to pass new laws that would disenfranchise minority voters. That's what happened. And this has led to a number of legal challenges. And over the past few months, several of these laws have been overturned in whole or in part by federal courts. And the two most recent setbacks for what I call minority disenfranchisement laws, because that's what I think they are, came just this that. well came just this week when the federal appeals court overturned North Carolina's voter ID requirement, and a federal judge in Wisconsin did the same thing for that state's laws. Okay, Jay, you can you can now have your rebuttal on that. Well, uh, first of all, I'd, I'd say um, historically there there actually were some other efforts uh, back in the. Reconstruction era uh, to ensure uh, minority voting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was the civil, well, there were so-called civil rights laws, and they went up to the Supreme Court in the uh, civil rights cases decided in 1873, um, and the the court threw these out, uh, saying they're unconstitutional, um, and which is you know looking back historically is really a a bad decision, unfortunate decision, um, because. We would be a vastly different country now, I think, uh, if if uh, these essentially civil rights acts had been passed in 1873 instead of 1964. Uh-huh. Um, uh, now, as far as uh, uh, are they they intended to disenfranchise minorities? Again, we've had this conversation a lot of times, um, and I, I disagree with you uh, very vehemently. I, I think it's to to safeguard against. Uh, uh, against fraud, sure. And if you if you say that minorities are somehow um, disproportionately disenfranchised, I mean, keep in mind this is about having voter ID, which is available. You can get from the the, the, the state. It's not a matter of uh, you are permanently disenfranchised. Uh, if it happens to be that you are a minority and you don't have this voter ID, well, there's there's an easy way to get it. Uh, it you know, again, people I suppose can can go back and forth on whether it's yep. how how difficult is it to to get the a state issued ID or something. But um, it's it's not a matter of you are being disenfranchised based on a condition that you cannot change. Okay, I'll, and I think that's that's. I'll make a, a couple points in response there. Uh, number one, I do not think, for the most part, and almost entirely, I do not think this has anything to do with disenfranchising minorities. I you think call it the dis- no, wait, minority disenfranchisement. Well, uh, yeah, and so I should I should have a, a better name for it. I should call it the the overwhelmingly democratic voter disenfranchisement act because I don't think it's really about racism. I don't I I honestly don't think that. I think okay. it's about okay. trying to to keep democratic voters from the polls. And now there are some Republicans actually agree with me. The uh, former chair of the Florida Republican Party has said that this whole thing about voter fraud is just a smokescreen. And not only that, Jay, but 
The state of North Carolina actually said this, in a sense, in their arguments. Uh, they actually said, the state argued that counties with Sunday voting in 2014 in North Carolina were disproportionately black and disproportionately democratic and said it did away with Sunday voting as a result. This is not something I'm making up. This was part of the state's own argument. So I, and again, I, I don't, I don't think it's racist. I understand why they're doing it. I understood why, you know, generations passed, why the Democrats did it. I think why you don't see this is because you're a fundamentally decent guy. You believe in fair play, and I think you surround yourself with fundamentally decent people, and that maybe it's hard for you to wrap your head around this, but the evidence of this, to me, is just so overwhelming. I, I don't Again, I don't think it's because Republicans hate black people or, or Latinos. I think it's because Republicans want to do whatever they can to win elections. And so they're doing this. And you know, I think it's wrong, obviously. So but th- that to me is it's pretty clear cut, I think. All right. F- fair enough on the look. Uh, Republicans want to lo- win elections. Absolutely. Um, but but part of that is and if, if you again consider the the big concern and let's let's just spell it out what the big concern is, uh, is that in certain districts in urban areas, you can have you have very you have numerous numerous precincts, and the way that 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 fraud is committed is, and and I can point you to um, who's my uh, Wall Street Journal guy uh, who does all this. It's not it's not David Frum who's going to be up uh, on our show not before too long. Um, name escapes me right now, uh, but we'll we'll post we'll post it. Um, no, the 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 plan is you get a whole bunch of people and you load them up on a bus or they drive separately or whatever and they go from polling place to polling place and they show up and they don't have ID and they vote. And that way you generate a whole lot of votes and and it's difficult if not impossible to go back and trace them. And in a close election, it makes a difference. If it's not close, it usually doesn't matter. Um but that's that's the concern. It's not uh, to to say I don't want someone to vote. It's I don't want you to vote a bunch of different times, uh, and in these these places where it it can't happen, which are large urban precincts, uh, large urban districts where you have high population uh, precincts very close together to one another, uh, are predominantly Democrat, and that's that's just the the way of things. Um, that that's a nice story. But it's you just can't, not you true. Can't hold off in a rural area. It's just not true, and it's just not true. I say that based on an awful lot of research that's been done for many, many years, finding that that sort of in-person vote fraud is is practically non-existent. But but, but no, wait, but wait, let me finish. But the type of vote fraud that's really concerning is absentee voter vote fraud and oh, stuffing ballot agree. boxes by people in part. But these are the things that these laws have not hardly addressed at all. They've been focusing on one particular type of vote fraud that all the research suggests is by far the least prevalent type and just coincidentally also means that as a byproduct, fewer Democratic voters will get the vote. I mean, come on. It's, it's the, but the, look at the research, though, that you're, you're talking about. There's no way they say – Look, there's no evidence of uh, vote fraud because, well, we haven't looked for it. Uh, because how do, how do you track if someone you're, is voting? You're right. If if you're if you're not if you're not looking for ID, and you say, "Aha, we got all these people here with fake IDs or or or, or no IDs," well, you're not going to be able to track it. That's but, that's sort of the whole point. But if the research shows that 
because presumably this would be the same across all types of vote fraud. If the research shows that there is one type of potential vote fraud that's, a con- that's more of a demonstrated concern, you would think that if this were only about vote fraud, that the first thing that reasonable people would do is they'd crack down on that type of vote fraud that we know that there's demonstrated evidence about that's more of, a, more of an issue, and that's the absentee voter stuff. But that's not what these laws are doing. And there's a good well, reason because, for it. Because the- because the vote, because absentee voter fraud is, is tougher to crack them on, right? I mean, how how exactly do you you do that? It's 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 a hard problem. So they're they're going to no. solve the the it's, easier problem. It's not Whether that harder of a problem. Smaller, You're wrong. Maybe the smaller problem. Um, You're but, wrong about it being a harder uh, problem. It's 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 a simple problem by making the conditions for absentee voting a little a little tougher. That's all. That's not, But then again, what does that do? Well, like, a lot what would of you do to make absentee voting tougher. Make it make it so that people need to, and this is done in some states where that people have to have like an actual reason that that they state that they can't get to the polls. That sort of thing. So I mean, oh, in some okay. states, it's I, just I got, I got a reason. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> And if they make up their reason, you'll you'll check that by how. Well, I, I mean, you know, that, that's a good point is how do you enforce this sort of thing, right? And I think that's a fair point. But also I think it's important to point out that at least – and this might be – I need to check on this. But I know a lot of older people who maybe have trouble getting to the polls, uh, you know, vote absentee without necessarily a medical or other reason where they're going to be out sure, of town. And a lot, and and a lot of those lot people of, vote um, Republican. Right. And a lot of states, a lot of states, uh, you know, Ohio is, is a straight out absentee. If you want to vote absentee, vote absentee. Yep. Um, uh, it, but it used to be you, if you were over 65, you could automatically vote absentee. And I imagine it's, it's that way in plenty of other states. Um, but so just saying that you need to have some kind of condition, it used to be I'm out of the county or I'm, uh, you know, act, active service or I'm medically incapacitated or, or something like that on the day of the election. Um, yeah, I, that's what I'm just saying is, is absentee vote fraud uh, is a tougher nut to crack. This ought to be an easier one. And it is a, a small hurdle for people who are going to vote yeah. uh, in person to get over. Okay, and I, I will say it is it is there we a, go. There it we is go. a, but look, a solution courts, in search of a problem. The courts are, are saying what they're going to say. Um, uh, absentee or uh, voter ID has been upheld and uh, enforced here in the Sixth Circuit uh, for quite some time, and and with no noticeable uh, disenfranchisement. And uh, again, maybe it's it's different. In these these uh, states where there were, were historical barriers to voting, um, that uh, the, the court has said what it said, and uh, you know the the state will go back and uh, rework this, or uh, it'll go up to uh, the Supreme Court eventually. Right. With, and with, I, I, actually, I, I doubt it goes up to the, the Supreme Court. But well, I certainly hope that uh, after uh, what I hope is a Hillary Clinton win and a and a fifth uh, liberal justice on the court, that it will go to the Supreme Court and they can revisit their horrifically bad 2012 decision that made a lot of this you possible. You won't even have to vote then. And you'll just, they'll just be able to assign your vote based on your demographics and uh, save uh, you the trouble. So. Okay. Anyway. All right then. Um, so, uh, you know, we're going to try out something a little bit new here on Politics Guys this week. It's our non-political thoughts of the week. Now we have no idea if this is of any interest to anyone so if you love it, if you hate it, if you're saying, what are you guys doing? 
let us know either way. And you can do that through emailing us at uh, politicsguys at gmail.com or you can post a comment on our Facebook page. All right. So What's I'll, your thought for the week, Mike? All right. Well, I'm still kind of working on mine. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I have a mostly non-political thought. It's actually a recommendation. Uh, okay. The novels of Anthony Trollope. Um, Trollope is, in my estimation, the best English author of the 19th century. And yes, that's including Charles Dickens. Um, unlike Dickens, who to me was always too melodramatic, Trollope portrays people as I think they really are. But he does it with a sort of wit and compassion that I find really utterly compelling. Not only that, but he was incredibly prolific. He wrote 40-something novels. And while you can't go too far wrong with any of his stuff, the consensus is generally the three best places to start in no particular order would be, number one, a book called The Warden, which is the first in a six-book series called The Chronicles of Barsetshire. Uh, Can You Forgive Her? The first in another six-book series called The Pulitzer Novels, which focuses a lot on uh, political goings-on in England during the time. Uh, and finally, a book called The Way We Live Now, which is the story of a rich con man who comes to town and suckers in all sorts of people who really should have known better. Now, you might possibly think about something in current American politics there. Also, I should point out, if you get the modern library edition of The Way We Live Now, you also get a great introduction by New York Times more or less conservative political columnist David Brooks. Um, And finally, I should mention that because Anthony Trollope wrote over 100 years ago, you can download any of his books for free at a lot of places, and it's legal, uh, which is nice if you just like to try them out and see what you think before you shell out any money. So that's my non-political thought or my recommendation for the week. Wow, that was, that's that's good. I'm gonna have to work on my my thoughts, but you know the thing that that occurred to me, and this is mine, is probably a little too political, but I, I want to say it's more more economic. Okay. Uh, in, in thinking about uh, Trump and Hillary and 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 where we are and and globalism and and so forth, um, you know, I, I think it it occurs to me, and this is just something that I don't know. Think about it. in every campaign, we want a dynamic economy. Um, and and by definition, that is one that creates new jobs, one that that does new things, um, and and by definition, again, that's always going to be to some extent destructive and disruptive, and and this is something that that I think we we have to just learn to to live with or or at least accept. I mean, I suppose you don't have to like it, but it's almost sort of like a a Buddhist principle or, you know, that Buddhist economics. Okay. Bring it on. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, look, life is, uh, life is change. Life is a series of, of, uh, creation and destruction. And, and, and that's, that's how we, we live. And in, in the dynamic economy that, that we want and quite honestly need, there are always going to be some winners and losers, and I guess the best thing that we can do policy-wise is to to try to make the this, the, the transition for people who come out on the losing end uh, easier to to help them become winners in the new economy. And and you know we we think that this is sort of the first time when we talk about globalism that uh, so many people have been displaced. I mean the the Sanders and Trump argument that uh, globalism has has destroyed the American worker. And look, to some extent, they're they're exactly right. Um, but globalism is less a policy and, and more just a fact of life. I mean, it's sort of like the Industrial Revolution, uh, like the Renaissance. 
Uh, I mean that you know these 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 events uh, are are driven by demographics and technology more so than than politics. Uh, and I would just say that you know looking back, um, you know Thomas Edison uh, did a whole lot more to save the whales than Greenpeace ever has or ever will. Uh, and he also put a whole lot of uh, people in Nantucket out of work. Um, but but we look and we say that uh, that is a overall a, a good thing, or even it's, if it's not a good thing, it's 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 something that's happened, and we need, we need to adapt to it. Okay. Well, I guess we have we've well, we had. So it's kind of political. No, right? I said it's pretty political. Yeah, I said it's pretty political. But that's okay. We have one non-political final thought and one political week. final thought. No, not at all. All right. Uh, well, that about does it for us this week. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or any questions for our Ask the Politics Guy show, which comes out on many Wednesdays, we're starting to do some interviews now, interspersing between that. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail dot com. Our Facebook page where Jay and I post and comment on news articles throughout the week and where you can join in is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really, really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. It really does help. Finally, if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a buck or two, the price of a Prestone premium radiator HVAC hose would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.